Philippians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. This is the word of the Lord. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Josh and Bethany and Rory and the crew that's here helping us put this on, and uh, it is a joy to, to be able to see you, those of, those of you who are joining us through Zoom. Uh, you know, now, you, you don't have the option now. Before, the last few weeks, I, I could not see you at all. You know, you could see me through the camera, but now I can actually see you, okay? So I'll know if you're not paying attention or if you're not interacting. So, uh, you know, I'll, if you don't have your Bible out, you know, you may be able to keep it down below the camera, but just know that I can see you. But it is a blessed joy and gift to see you. And I just want to say, even just before we get started, there are so many conversations among pastors and churches right now about how the fear is that we are trying to recreate the worship gathering through what we're doing on Sunday mornings. And as we've said time and time again, that's not what we're trying to do. But I don't want you to waste this, this providential moment. The Lord has brought us to this time. And on this Easter Sunday, you were worshiping with your family in your home. And through technology, we have the, the joy of being able to see one another and interact with one another in some ways. And we can be thankful for that. It, it is a blessing that we are saying, for the sake of public health, for the sake of one another, for the sake of our city, this room on Sunday mornings that we are standing in will remain empty for as long as we need it to remain empty. And yet, our hope in Jesus has not changed we are still able to worship together even though we are apart. So I don't want you to waste this season, especially on Easter. What I want us to do to begin, before we dive into this passage, is walk through the events of Easter, the historical events of Easter. And Easter centers on the person and work of Jesus. So let's, let's walk through it. And you may even want to make a list. First, Jesus was arrested he was put on trial. He was crucified. 
Second, Jesus died and was buried. Third, Jesus and his soul, his human soul, descended to the place of the dead. And and that language may be fresh for you, it may be confusing for you, but it's just to say that when Jesus died, he died no differently than any other person dies. He died, his body was placed in a tomb, and his human soul, according to his human nature, his soul descended to the place of the righteous dead. Fourth, Jesus was raised from the dead. So those were the events. Those are the historical events of Easter. And what we see after that, when Jesus is raised from the dead and we see his physical body, those who were there that saw his physical body, after that body had been mangled, crucified, left lifeless, and buried. When the ones who saw the living Jesus and then they saw the dying Jesus and then they saw the buried Jesus, Once they saw the resurrected Jesus, the world essentially changed overnight. Now, Paul chronicles that for us at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. He writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Now, here's the point. Hundreds of people saw Jesus in his physical body after his death. And those people, they told all their friends. And those friends told their friends. And the the news started to spread and a movement started. Churches started popping up, and it spread rapidly all over the world. Now, once it started moving in this rapid way, a lot of people have started observing the nature of the Christians in the ancient world. Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, and in it he observes how Christianity grew during times of persecution and how Christianity grew during times of pandemic. He writes this, Christianity offered a much more satisfactory amount of why the account of why these terrible times had fallen upon humanity. And it projected a hopeful, even enthusiastic portrait of the future. Now, Stark, he goes on to say in his book, there are a few reasons why Christians were unique and set apart from their pagan neighbors. And he gives a number of those. I'm going to share a couple. During the epidemics of the day, when a plague would break out in in the cities of the Roman Empire, most of the pagans that were not sick fled. They, They left the cities. And the Christians stayed. They stayed. They ministered. They cared for the sick. And secondly, he makes the observation that during times of persecution, Christians did not respond with terrorism. They did not fight back, and they died forgiving their persecutors. Now, as Christianity spreads after the resurrection of Jesus, we need to ask, why was the early church so unique? 
Why were the early Christians so different from their pagan neighbors? Well, it's because they were secure in the future. Knowing what our future holds changes how we live now. Knowing what our future holds changes how we live now. Christians sacrificially cared for the sick because they didn't fear death. They, they forgave those who were, un, uh, when they, or they forgave their persecutors when they were unjustly persecuted because they believed that one day God is going to set all things right. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is the basis for what our future holds, which means the resurrection of Jesus radically changes how we live now. Paul says in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And he goes on to say, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. What he's saying here is that since we confess that Jesus was raised from the dead, we have a certain future ahead of us. And, and that certain future has a bearing on our lives now. If the resurrection isn't true, then, then sure, just live however you want. Because it doesn't matter. You're going to die in your sin anyway. But if the resurrection is true, and Jesus is Lord, and our future is bright, then we have to consider how to live in light of that truth. A, a famous passage from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, If Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He says, the entire Christian faith hangs by the thread of the truth of the resurrection. So he's actually saying here, there is a legitimate reason for rejecting Christianity or rejecting Jesus. And that reason would be, Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead. He's saying, that's legit. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, book it. Let's, let's, let's just abandon this whole thing. Give up, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. If Jesus remained dead and buried in a tomb outside Jerusalem, then he would not be worth following. And we should not give our lives to him. And we, we have a legitimate reason to reject Christianity. Any other reason for rejecting Christianity is far too small. There is a level of certainty, validation, vindication in the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have reason to believe everything else he said and did. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have confirmation that he accomplished what he said his death would accomplish. So, as we're starting here, this is where we're jumping off. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It changes everything about our future. It changes everything about how we live now. It redefines our very lives. Paul says in Colossians that we have been raised with Christ. So what I want to do is I want to consider two future resurrection realities that we have to look forward to, which also change how we live now. And they're really simple. Here's the first one. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, death can't really kill us. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, death can't 
really kill us. Now, this is the famous part of this passage that we read. It's quotable. It's glorious. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul is mocking death in this this moment. But notice what Paul's not saying. Paul's not saying that death is removed. Paul is saying that death is stingless. Death is conquered. It has no victory over us. When Jesus rose from the dead, the sting of death was vanquished. We need to think about that for a minute. What is the sting of death? Thankfully, I'm so thankful he did this. He tells us in verse 56. The sting of death is sin. Sin. And and this means something very interesting, and I, I don't know that you've considered it. Death isn't the worst thing that can happen to us. We think of it as, as the end, but the, the worst. It's, it's the ultimate fear. That's not the worst thing that can happen to us because death is not the sting. Death contains a sting. The sting is sin and the judgment our sin deserves. It's the wrath of God that will be poured out against our sin. The worst thing that can happen to us is what the Bible calls the second death. And the worst part of the worst thing that can happen to us is that we all deserve the second death because we all sin. We all fall short. And even worse than that, we all know it. We all know it deep down that there's something wrong. So it's not death that we fear or that we should fear. It's what comes after death. I want you to think of it this way. I was reading a lot this week. I was reading a lot of some, some guys that are so insightful on the resurrection. Don't necessarily agree with them on, on everything else. One of those guys is N.T. Wright. I love N.T. Wright on the resurrection. And in, in something I was reading from him, he, he made reference to a Greek philosopher, uh, Epicurus. Now, Epicurus lived about 300 years before the birth of Jesus, and he's most famous for saying, death is nothing. And, and initially, you know, I was like, oh, I need to check. I, I can't wait to see what he means by that, because you would think, well, that's what we think too. Death is nothing. You know, that's essentially what Paul's saying. But here's what he means. Death is annihilation. There's nothing after death. So Epicurus said, if we could be sure that death was annihilation, then there would be no fear of it. For as long as we exist, death is not there. And when it does come, we no longer exist. It's attractive at first. But I hope you notice how he phrases it. He's very careful. If we could be sure, and I agree with him, if we could be certain that that death is annihilation, that there's nothing beyond death, there's no reason to fear death. If you're alive now, you're not dead. You know, and, and once you're dead, you won't know it. There's, there's no reason to fear it. But here's the problem. We can't be totally sure of that. Our hearts actually suggest differently. So what we can actually read out of this, though, read into this, is that people don't fear death per se. People fear that death is not annihilation. 
People fear what Paul refers to as the sting of death. People fear that there may be abiding poison that is beyond death that they will experience because of what they have done in this life. And nobody can know with certainty that there is no judgment beyond death. And I don't know if you've ever considered this before, but the mere possibility that there is judgment beyond death should terrify you. Being faced with death is being faced with this sober reality that we have not lived our lives as we should have lived them. And while Epicurus at the time was saying, you know, we can't be sure that there's any judgment after death, so, you know, if we could, then maybe death is nothing. The Christians came along after the resurrection of Jesus, and they started confessing something else. They started confessing, oh, no, we can be sure there is a judgment. There is judgment coming. There is a sting that comes after death. There is a second death that comes. There is judgment, but Jesus took it. Jesus took it. Through Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he removed the sting of death. And that's why Paul can mock it. Oh, death, where is your sting? I'm not exactly sure who said this. I picked it up somewhere. Probably Tim Keller. He's, He's so quotable. I probably picked it up there. But this quote from whoever it is, the resurrection is the receipt that proves you don't owe for your sins. Because of the resurrection, death can't really kill you because the sting of death is gone. Now, since the sting of death is gone, since we don't have death nor the sting of death to fear, we are then set free like those early Christians to love and to live sacrificially, to fully give of ourselves, to take holy risks for the sake of others. We we can remain balanced, we can remain patient and peaceful and content even during a pandemic, even during the coronavirus crisis. Now, when we panic, when we freak out, when we lash out at others, when we read 75 articles a day on the virus, and we're just constantly stressing ourselves out, we're actually demonstrating that we've forgotten the shape and the arc of our future. The worst thing that can possibly happen to you has been swallowed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. What you should fear most in this world, what can do you the most harm, righteous judgment from God against your sin fell squarely on Jesus on the cross. So how will the resurrection of Jesus affect the way that we live in this crisis? Are our words, actions, social media activity reflecting our contentment and confidence in the glorious future that the resurrection of Jesus has secured for us. Death has been robbed of victory. The sting of death has been removed. So what are you so afraid of? What what can mere man do to you? We can lose everything including our own lives, and still gain because Jesus rose from the dead. Death can't really kill us. But there's a second resurrection reality in this passage I want to point you to. Jesus secured something 
that's so marvelous. And I don't know that you've seen it in this way before because when we come to a passage like this, we usually skip down to verse 54, verse 55, 56 because they're so beautiful. And we skip the paragraph above. But the second reality that changes how we live now, because Jesus was raised from the dead, death can't keep our bodies. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, death can't keep our bodies. All right, so let me read it for you. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. All right, we're going to stop there. Now, a couple words that keep repeating through there, but this is so interesting. Anytime we think of death, anytime we, we have a loved one who passes away, we're at a funeral, and, and we're presented with death, even, even when you're, you know, walking through a cemetery. My, my family, whenever we take walks, we typically walk through the cemetery and join her, and we, we think about it often. You know, we talk about it some. Um, it's a really awesome time to just talk about death with the kids, you know, just kind of running and throwing rocks in puddles. It's, it's really interesting. We have a weird life. Um, but when we think of death, we usually console ourselves by, by remembering that even though we bury the body, the soul lives on. We bury the body, but the soul lives on. But the resurrection of Jesus actually secures something way better for us. So Jesus' resurrection secured imperishable and immortal bodies. Now, just so you're not confused with the words, imperishable basically means that decay is impossible. And immortality essentially means that death is impossible. And, and Paul, he's covering all of redeemed humanity in this. He's covering those who, at the return of Jesus, who had already died and those who uh, were still alive on the earth. So he says, at Christ's return, those who had already died will be raised with imperishable and immortal bodies. And those who are alive at the return of Christ, they will be changed from their current form and they will be given imperishable and immortal bodies. But what's interesting about this, Paul doesn't just say, you know what's going to be awesome? When Jesus comes back, he's got a little surprise for you. He's going to unveil a brand new glorious body. It's going to be all yours. Isn't that awesome? No, it's, it's interesting how Paul lays out the argument. He says, in the same way that you cannot inherit the kingdom of God by physical birthright, you can't. You can't be born physically into the kingdom of God. That's impossible. Since that, in the same way that that's impossible, it's also impossible for you to inherit the new heavens and the new earth in your current body. Your current body won't do. He, he says, y'all can't come in here like this. It's, it's like this really like next level black tie event or something, you know. Like these, current, these clothes won't do. You have, you have to have a change of clothes if you're going to get in on the new heavens and the new earth. So it's not just that it would be wonderful to have an imperishable and immortal body. It's actually necessary for the kind of world that God is creating for us and has for us in the future. It is necessary for us to have bodies that don't decay and bodies that never die. So 
It's at this point that Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will all be changed. All of us in Christ will be changed. So the resurrection of Jesus, it secured this brand new, glorified, imperishable, immortal bodies for all who believe in him. And the physicality and the material newness of Jesus' resurrection is so important and instructive for us. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was not a spirit. He wasn't just a soul floating around. Jesus rose from the dead, and he rose bodily from the dead. They saw him, and they recognized him. They could touch him. They ate with him. Jesus' bodily resurrection is a foretaste of life in the consummated kingdom of God that awaits us. So while the sin of Adam, if you remember the sin of Adam, while the sin of Adam was a foretaste of the decay and the death that would fill the earth, the the righteousness, the atonement, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's a foretaste. It's a foretaste, a bodily foretaste of the imperishable and immortal life that will fill the new earth. So when Paul says that over 500 people saw Jesus' resurrected body, here's what they actually saw. They got a little glimpse, just a little, a little glimpse, a little taste of what they will be like one day. So, I don't want you to pass over what you're actually confessing when you say, he is risen. When you post it, when you text it, he is risen. We are confessing that our hope is a hope for a future world of no decay, a future world of no death, a future world without illness or fatigue, without aches and pains. And I love how Paul puts it in verse 54. Have you ever read verse 54 like this? This is the first time I've ever seen it in this way. He says that future glorified bodies, they are the clue that death is actually defeated. We confess that death is defeated now, but here's when we will know that it is true. When you are raised and you have a new body. That's when you will know death is defeated. Look at it. He says in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? While death does seem to take our bodies, Jesus won't let death keep our bodies. When we are raised to new, imperishable, immortal bodies, we will see with fresh eyes our confession is true. Death is defeated. Death took Jesus' body for a time too, but then he conquered death, and when he conquered death, he took his body back and it was glorified. N.T. Wright puts it this way, he says, commenting on this verse this indeed is the defeat of death not a compromise in which death is allowed to have the body while some other aspect of the human being goes marching on 
knowing what the future holds changes how we live now. When you know what's coming, you plan and you prepare accordingly. And at this point in, in his description, after this glorious praise of Jesus, you know, we expect Paul to say something like, well, therefore, brothers and sisters, look forward in hope for that great day. But, but that's not what we find. It's, it's kind of anticlimactic when you think about it. Verse 58. After he just said, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He lays out these glorious realities of the future that awaits us. And then he makes such an ordinary application. He, he says, in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, in light of the defeat of death's sting and the immortality that awaits you, keep working hard. Keep plodding along in the Lord's work. Keep being faithful. I, I love what N.T. Wright says here as well. He says, despite the discontinuity between the present mode of corruptible physicality and the future world of non-corruptible physicality, there is an underlying continuity between present bodily life and future bodily life. And this gives meaning and direction to present Christian living. Pursuing godliness, sacrificially loving others, ordinary acts of kindness, those encouraging texts that you guys send to one another that no one else will see, they all have deep meaning and shape because Jesus was raised from the dead. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, then I could not rightfully encourage you to live in any certain way. You'd be free to choose. Do what you want, live how you want, doesn't matter, there's no hope. but Christ has been raised from the dead. And since he has been raised from the dead, let's strive to live in our present bodies, in our present world, how we will live in our glorified bodies, in the glorified new earth. Let's be steadfast. Let's be immovable. Let's abound in our love for one another, in our love for our city, especially during this crisis when we have much to lose all because Christ is risen. Death can't really kill you and death can't keep our bodies. All the while, remembering that your ordinary, unnoticed labor for the Lord is not 